Well, good morning again, everybody. I hope that your week went well. It's good to see so many of you here this morning. Uh, and in kind of keeping with the themes that we've been doing the last few weeks to try to get our minds in gear in terms of thinking about the message and what we're going to be talking about. Um, I got a question for you today in terms of what has been your favorite job in the past? Now, this doesn't have to be a nine to five job where you get a paycheck. It could be something that you really enjoy doing around the house or a chore or something like that. For example, I remember way back when, when I was a little kid, we used to go over and get together as families and we used to spend a whole Saturday and we would just cut apples and then we would put them in the press and we would make apple cider. And I loved to just crank that press. I also love to use knives, pass that trait down to my boys. So it's one of those things that I just enjoyed doing that every fall. It was something that I took a lot of pride in, a lot of joy because of that. So when you think about work in your life, what is it that you do that you just really light up, that you enjoy doing those types of things? Um, and you know, when you think about how we experience work, you know, it can be harder to pinpoint because many times we can have a love-hate relationship with work. We love the money, but maybe we don't like our boss or our coworkers or, or what we're doing. So it can make it a little bit harder to pinpoint. You know, there's challenges, there's hardships, there's other people that you can brush up against in the wrong way. You know, bosses that in our minds might not know what they're doing. Of course, if they let us run everything, everything would be a lot smoother because we know what to do. But, you know, maybe when you think about work, maybe there's things within work that go against your ethical principles, your moralities, your values. Maybe there's something that you truly enjoy in the past, but it's changed. You know, maybe it's the best job you can find in this area for your qualifications, so you grit your teeth and you move and press forward. But think about what you've truly enjoyed in your life. And if I'm hoping that you found something in your mind, what was it about that job that you loved so much? And then the real question, was there any focus on the Lord in what you were doing? You know, if, if it's something from 20 or 30 years ago, maybe that's a time and a period before you were a Christian. So that might not fit in as well. But as we're in church now, as we're all professing Christians and, and we reflect on what we've been talking about, you know, you go back up into verse 17. How does that fit into the picture where everything that we do and say should honor the name of the Lord? Are we working for the Lord? How is the new self impacting our employment and our opportunities. So this is kind of what we're gonna be discussing today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're still in the book of Colossians. We're gonna finish up chapter three, uh, beginning in verse 22. <laughs> and then we're going to finish uh, verse one in chapter four. So if you have your Bibles open, I invite you to stand as you're able as we read God's word.
beginning in verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service or as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Father, as we study your word today, I just pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to your truths, and that you would help us to apply these principles to our daily life, and that we can honor you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so as you can see just through reading this short little passage, we're going to be talking about the issue of slavery and kind of what's being talked about in the context of Paul's audience. Now, this entire passage deals with the duty of slaves, servants, or bondservants. I'll use those terms interchangeably today. Um, uh, we'll also be talking about their masters. Now, as we talk about these things, it might seem a little bit foreign or irrelevant to our day. However, there is an enduring principle that we're gonna be studying this through the lens of. Um, and in the end, we're gonna be trying to apply this to our own employment and how we're treating our bosses, employees, coworkers, etc. Kind of looking at how we approach work. I wanna be upfront and I wanna say that I'm not trying to say that our positions or our jobs are equal to the plight of slavery of slaves or servants, but rather uh, my focus in these types of positions is whether or not we as believers reflect Christ and the new self in what we're doing. See, we need to see this as a service that is being rendered to the Lord, and it's this type of principle that can motivate us to give an honest, hardworking days of work where it's fruitful, where we're not being ungrudging or we're not trying to belittle people. Instead, we're trying to honor the name of the Lord. Um, we can also mention you know, the dignity that we receive in the type of work that we do. Uh, we can look back to Ecclesiastes and look at the toil and how that is described in that book and how God speaks it's not good for us to have idle hands. So it's a good thing for us to stay busy with work and the work that is set before us. Now, as we look at this passage um, and others like it within the New Testament, you can read this passage and perhaps get a sense that Paul is not concerned with the social structure or the issue of slavery itself. You know, he's not calling it out. He's not demanding that it's abolished. He's not saying that it's wrong. Instead, he is basically telling the people to accept their servitude. And it's because of passages like this that non-Christians would use something like this to say that Christians are for, for slavery. They're celebrated. They ask you to remain as slaves. But we want to remember some of the context. We want to understand it's not Paul's intention. And again, I'm going to use the term slavery. Um, your Bibles might say bondservant or just servant. There definitely were bond servants in, in this time period where you were a servant of someone because you were paying off of a, de a debt or something like that. You think of Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant that he, he lists, that he gives in Matthew. You know, one of the key things to realize is that in this era, in this time period, more than half of the world's population were slaves. 
due to the fact that they were conquered by the Roman Empire. So they were in servitude to the Romans. Uh, it didn't matter if you were a doctor, a government official, a business person, you were owned by the Romans because they conquered your land. These people would then assimilate into the Roman culture. Um, rarely would you find the opportunities to become a Roman citizen where you had the freedoms, where you had the privileges. So you had a lot of servitude within this empire. Now, sometimes it could be similar to domestic servants, like what we might recognize from the Victorian periods in the British Empire, but most of the time, slaves were just treated as tools to advance the empire forward, whether that's through war, whether that's through making things. Um, they would use their work to advance the Roman Empire forward. So when we think about all of the evils that are associated with slavery, there are a few things that we want to acknowledge. You know, it was accepted universally in the ancient times to be considered a fundamental institution for civilized society. Now, for us who live in more modern democracies, who abhor these types of things, we couldn't possibly think that this could happen today, could we? Well, low estimates, there's at least 30 million people still in slavery worldwide. You think of all of the trafficking that happens in terms of human trafficking for sex tra trade and things like that. Um, it might not be a complete one-to-one, -one, but there are also many countries that do not have child labor laws. So little kids build our toys, conveniences that we, and of course, civilized societies, demand and enjoy. Ignorance can be bliss, as they say. Another point that we do want to acknowledge as we talk about this, there has definitely been times throughout history where Christians would use the Bible in order to keep slavery going, in order to oppress and control others. It's biblical. Obey your masters. Perhaps not the best reading or interpretation as a whole, but just acknowledging how the Bible has been used in the past. And again, I do want to say that it is a concern. Um, I, I don't want to say that it's not a concern for Paul and the authors uh, of the New Testament. It is a concern that they do not condemn it, sure. But again, that's putting our first world context into their situations. Whereas within the early church, you do not have a political voice. You do not have lobbyists to control or affect the government. They're making changes within the communities, calling for people to live out Christian principles. These men, these apostles, these evangelists, first and foremost, were heralds of the gospel message. That is what they were trying to do, to bring the good news of Christ into these people's lives to set them free. It wasn't that they condoned slavery, but rather worked within the confines of their government, the ruling class, to still be able to spread the gospel to the people who are physically and spiritually bound, to show how Christ can break free from the chains. Paul is more concerned with how the Christians live out their lives within the contemporary situations that they might find themselves in. And it's important for us to understand that. You know, it was important for them to carry on their mission no matter what their social conditions or circumstances were. You know, in spiritual matters, the master and the slave were equal in Christ, even though in society they were on different levels. So this is his emphasis, and we have to hold that into our minds as we, as we study this passage. 
So, when we look at verse 22, bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, I don't know how your brain works. It might be a little bit like mine, and I apologize if it is. But when you look at how that's written, you might make some correlations to what's written above. Seems a little similar to kids, obey your parents and everything. And you could begin to think, hmm, mom and dad do oppress me. They tell me to do all of these things. It's like I'm a servant. Or maybe you could look at this verse and think of your current employment opportunities and think of your boss in that way. Again, as, as I said, we're going to be looking at it through the lens of employment. But we want to understand that many times we can think of things as oppressing us. But in reality, it, again, it is our own pride and selfishness and wanting to do what we want to do that's getting in the way of our understanding. But you know, when you look at Paul's instructions here, Obey in everything, not by the way of eye service or as people pleasers, but with a sincerity and heart fearing the Lord. You know, this is the principle that we have to understand. It's through our fear of the Lord where we're giving him our all in the tasks that are before us, where we're working for the Lord. Now, the next few verses continue that same theme to express how we need to see work as being done for the Lord, not merely for their masters, but primarily for him. You think of your jobs now. Is that your outlook? Is that how you treat your work? You know, again, jobs don't have to be a nine to five. It could be a stay-at-home mom. You could be doing chores around the house. You could be doing yard work. It goes back up to verse 17. In everything that we do or say, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So are we doing things just because we get a paycheck? Or do we consider where the Lord wants us to be in how we approach these jobs? Now, I also appreciate verse 22 because it calls me out um, with my fellow people pleasers or perhaps even hypocrites who stand on the street corners in order to be seen by men. It's kind of a gut check, especially in my line of work where it's super spiritual. You know, even though I work one day a week. You know, I can easily get up here and think, I'm working for the Lord, I'm doing everything for the Lord because I get to be up here and I get to present the word of God. But what am I doing in the rest of the week? How are the interactions I have with my neighbors? How am I teaching my children? How am I teaching those in classical conversations? Am I doing it for the Lord or am I doing it for me? You know, giving a message is just one aspect of what I do. And even in that message, there's moments of strength and of weakness but you know, if I need to work as if everything I am doing is for the Lord. And he continues this point in verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as a reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. See, when we understand that we have one true master, it can change our perspective, our attitude, and hopefully our performance. You know, so that even changing diapers can be seen as an act of worship. It can be seen as an act of ministry. You know, God calls each of us into different fields, um, and he uses people with different backgrounds. He does that through all of Scripture. You think of the different people. Gideon is a farmer. Dorcas was a seamstress. David was a shepherd. Daniel was a government official. 
Lydia was a businesswoman. Luke was a doctor. Peter was a fisherman. And it goes on and on. To work hardly at our jobs means that you work with your whole heart and soul, where you are pouring everything you have into what you're doing. And what's the immediate pushback? I'm not giving work everything. They'll get what, what I'm valued at or what they're paying me. I'm not going to work all of my, with all of my might for this job because they don't respect me. They don't value me. They don't pay me enough. How often are we at work watching the clock, especially if you're hourly? Now, sometimes you're watching the clock because you're bored at work. I get that. Definitely have been there. How many times do you work super hard thinking, all right, it's got to be lunchtime. It's only an hour. You know, you, you have those moments. And again, when we think about how we respond, how we act on the job site, what we are given, you know, we can show signs of hard work or we can show signs of laziness. You know, if we're showing signs of laziness, then we're not showing our dedication to Christ in what we're doing. And again, it's super convicting because oftentimes we're wanting to do what we want to do, maybe not what our bosses are telling us. And then after work, you come home, and what awaits you but more work? See, I think that this teaching goes well with the series on rest in terms of how to balance the times that we rest and the times of having a good productive day that was efficient, that, was, that you feel confident in a day's hard work, that you're giving things to the Lord while at the same time understanding and enjoying the rest from the Father. You know, and as we begin to shift in our understanding that we're working for Christ and not an employer, not for a job, we understand that we receive an inheritance that's from the Lord. Now, a couple of things about this inheritance. It's not to be our sole motivation, but we want to understand the impact of this statement. Because again, Paul is speaking to actual slaves. Slaves who have no legal right to inheritance. Slaves who have probably had everything taken from them being conquered by the Roman Empire. So they have no expectation in an earthly sense of an actual inheritance. But rather in a spiritual sense, they put all of their hope in the Lord Christ. Now this, this Lord Christ phrase is the only time that this is used in the New Testament the way that that's worded. And the way that I understand this is it's probably said in that way to, comp to compete with what's known as the Lord Caesar, to where Paul is actually speaking to them and saying, God is your true master, Christ is your true master, not Caesar, not this other person that has conquered you, but rather Christ. Keep your focus on him. And he reminds them and he instructs them that an inheritance would be theirs for serving faithfully in Christ's name and they would receive it in full. Now there are so many verses that speak about inheritance, and I joked with Jared that of course we had to talk about inheritances today in Sunday school. It never fails. But it's sweet the way that the Lord does this. You know, all believers will receive some inheritance simply because of God's grace through salvation. But there are many passages that speak about believers who remain faithful to the Lord who will receive more inheritance. Um, I'm going to list a bunch of different passages and read over those. 
you can write these down as a reference and kind of go back and study it. And there's so many more than what I'm just going to give you today. But these are all just going to be from the New Testament. Beginning in Matthew 16, 27. It says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Mark 9, 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Luke 6, 22 and 23. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. So their fathers did to the prophets. John twelve twenty six. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. First Corinthians three, this is a longer section, verses five through fifteen. I'll read the whole thing just for the context. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as a Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And if and sorry, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. First Corinthians nine, twenty five and twenty or through twenty seven. Every athlete exercises self control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And that, of course, is speaking of the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. First Thessalonians two, nineteen and 20. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. James 1.12 Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. 
For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Second John, verse 8. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win the full reward. And then some various verses in Revelation 2, speaking of the churches that John is going to be addressing. So I'm just going to read some of the verses. You can focus on all of chapter 2 if you're going to go back to read some of this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. He who hears, or sorry, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone so that no one knows except the one who receives it. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and will give to each of you according to your works. The one who conquers and the one who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then Revelation finishes in chapter 22 as it says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So again, just a smattering of different verses that speak about this type of a subject. Within all of these verses, it's important for us to understand that an inheritance is coming, and it's tied to what we're doing, how we are working for the Lord. Yes, as believers, we have the general inheritance of salvation. But within the Bema Seat of Christ, the judgment seat, within that last verse of Revelation 22, we can see that there's a different inheritance as well. And it's based on the work that we do for the Lord. Now, it doesn't mean that we all have to be missionaries or pastors. But rather, where we are, focus on what the Lord has you to do. And work heartily as if for the Lord. Now looking at verse 25, back in Colossians chapter 3, I find this verse interesting, at least from my perspective, and we'll see if, I can't really know how you perceive it when you read it, but we'll, we'll talk about that. You know, verse 25 says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Who is the wrongdoer? It's the million dollar question. You know, when I look at it from my lens, from, you know, being in America and not having to deal with slavery, of course I think, well, it's the slave master who's in the wrong. He's not really living with the Christian principles. That must be who he's talking about. Then I can relate that to my work conditions, right? Well, my boss, he's the problem. He's the dumb one. Of course I'm right. And then I can justify just about anything that I want to do, understanding that, of course, he's the wrong one. 
that boss is the wrong one, not me. Not me, I'm not doing anything wrong. When we look at, when we look at it like that, we get on our high horse, right? We have pride, we have selfishness. But within this context, he is still talking about the slave. He is still talking about the inheritance, that if they are not working for the Lord, they're doing things wrong. If they are not working heartily with their all, they're not doing things right. And they will be paid back for that. They will have bad consequences, which is probably a lack of reward, again, based on the context. But we want to understand that God is impartial. Romans 2.11, God shows no favoritism. So what this tells us, or how it should convict us, is you know, just because we're Christians, just because we go to church, we don't presume that our position before God is just there, and he's going to overlook all of our misdeeds, all of our wrongdoings. We will have a lack of reward. We will have consequences. So in this passage, it is the slave who is reminded that there is no favoritism with God. In the parallel passage in Ephesians, it's the master who is reminded. So Paul covers both of those bases because it is to God that a Christian, um, whether they're master or slave, are accountable to. And the masters are accountable for how they treat their slaves because both will bow before God alike because God is the master. And when we look at chapter four, verse one, it says, masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So as he's turning now towards the master of the slaves, he is charging them to treat them fairly, to treat them justly. That is their duty. You know, when you think about the Roman world, of course the slaves had no rights. The slaves had to do whatever their masters told them to do. You know, Paul is not hesitating to teach that the duty of the master is to also work for the Lord, that he needs to use justice, that he needs to treat people with mercy, just as the book of Micah tells us. You know, when we think about the obligations that masters have, they should remember that they too have a master. And it's because of that view it should transform how they regard and treat their slaves again, namely with justice and fairness. Interestingly, when you look through history, wherever Christians made up a significant part of the the community or the population, and they were living out those Christian principles, that is when you saw slavery get abolished. Because as they were treating the people as they should have under God's eyes, it is through that Christian work that that segment of the population gained freedom. Kind of makes you think back to Second Chronicles 7.14. If the people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. You know, in Paul's teachings about work and relationships between slaves and masters, it has to be remembered that while Christians are on the same level in the Lord, there are still spheres of subordination within society. You know, we've talked about that last week as we looked at the family unit, and we saw the different roles that had to be played, where there's definite spiritual equality, but there are distinctions. The husbands are the head of the household, the children are to obey the parents, and the 
then today the slave is to be subject to his master. We understand that these distinction and roles are a part of society in different ways, in different forms. But for us, we still need to press into verse 17 of chapter 3, that whatever you do, whether it is word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So that as we're in the workplace, we have the opportunity to show the person of Jesus to our bosses, to our coworkers, to our customers, to our communities. We have the responsibility to work hard in all that we have been given, to work for the Lord in order to magnify his name, to honor and glorify him rather than ourselves, rather than our companies. Now inevitably, of course, hardships will come. Changes will happen, you'll change jobs, you'll retire, you'll have different seasons. But our devotion to the Lord stays the same. Our willingness to work hard and heartily in everything that we do in order to honor him should stay the same. So my prayer is that our perspectives can change a little bit more and more as we grow closer to the Lord and that melds into our workplaces, to our bosses, to our coworkers, where we can praise the Father in all things. Let's pray. Father, as we... Think about our jobs, Lord. It is, it can be a love-hate relationship at times. As we brush up against other people, as we have frustrations, as we have very real challenges and conflicts. But Lord, I just pray, Lord, as we put on the new self, that we are able to reflect you in, in all things. Helping us to understand what is right, seeking discernment of where you would have us be, um, whether that's changing jobs, whether that's staying where we need to be, um, and even geographically, Lord, where you call us, that we need to, places that we need to go to spread your gospel message. Lord, I pray that you would give all of us opportunities to share your word, to share your truth, to share your son, Jesus Christ. That through our actions, through our words, people will be drawn closer to you. Lord, through our actions of working heartily, that's not seen as just trying to get promoted or to get further up into the company, but rather to honor you first and foremost. Lord, I thank you for where you have called to each one of us and that you have brought us here today to worship you, to praise you, to magnify your name. So as we continue this service, Lord, I just pray that that you would meet us where we are today, that your spirit would convict us in those areas that we, we know that we need to work on. Lord, help us to apply these truths. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.